What's happening, rock and rollers? This is your good buddy, Steve Brown, and you're listening to my pal, Joe Sibilia, on the Rock and Roll Coffee Show podcast. Turn it up and drink some coffee. Coffee Show episode 46. I am your host, Joe Sibelia, and tonight's guest, Mick Sweeta from the band Bullet Boys. Now, Mick was a founding member of the Bullet Boys, also played in King Cobra with Carmen Apice, and he also has his latest project called The Hot Summers. So we're going to talk to Mick about his musical journey and his career. If you like the show, please make sure to follow us on Instagram. You can find us over there at R&R Coffee Show and also on Facebook. Please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. And don't forget to leave us a review. We love to see the reviews. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey there. Hey, Mick. What's up, buddy? It's Joe with the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show. Joe, how are you, brother? You know what? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Can you hear me okay? I can. Can you hear me? I can. I can. I always like to check that out because sometimes I get surprised. It's important. <laughs> you know how technology is. Sometimes it lets you, uh, gives you what you want and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where are you at now, Mick? I'm living in Los Angeles. Okay, so you've been out there a while, correct? Yeah, uh, well, I've lived most of my adult life up here, and, and we took uh, out here, I should say, and, and we took a little break and moved out of town for like twelve years, and then came back. So, how how is uh, life out there in LA right now? I, uh, with everything going on, you know, I think California got hit pretty hard. I mean, is it still pretty tight out there? Or what's going on? Well, at the risk of sounding uh, uh, well out of touch maybe i i love being home i mean i'm i'm obviously aware that uh, people are suffering and people have lost their jobs and people have died and and it's a horrific uh pandemic that you know in my opinion should never have been loosed on the world yeah. but um you know for me personally it uh we i am such an introvert almost to the point of being uh you know, kind of a, a misanthrope that I, I love being home and I'm sitting in my studio working on music all day. So, you know, for me, um, I'm certainly not going to go so far as to call it a blessing, but uh, it is working out you know, yeah, yeah. For, for me, if that makes any sense. And, and please, you know, don't take that the wrong way. I'm, sure. I'm no. very aware of how awful this whole situation is, but uh, I, you know, I'm making sure that my family is safe and, and, Thank goodness we've been uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. Good to hear. Yeah, I'm out in South Carolina, and uh, it's, uh, I, you know, you'd be surprised how many people don't do, in my opinion, what you should be doing right now. But 
Yeah. Leave it at that. Well, on a, on a side note, uh, one of the places we talk about, because, you know, L.A. is a difficult place to live, and, and California is basically an ungovernable state, um, no matter how hard people try to destroy it, they just can't do it. But um, we, we talk about moving out to Savannah, and I know that's in Georgia, but, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm from New York originally, and, and uh, my wife has always been in California, but she, she loves the idea of moving out there on, to the uh, Atlantic coast. Well, so if, you do, if you do, hit me up. I'm only three hours from Savannah. Yeah. You know, yeah I'm, awesome. in, I'm in Myrtle great. Beach. Nice. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I appreciate you coming on the show tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. <laughs> you know, we've been trying to, uh, we've been talking about it for a couple of months now, and uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm happy to do it, and uh, looking forward to a fun conversation. Hope you don't mind if I crack a beer and sort of settle in. No, go right ahead. I've got one open too. As a matter of fact, it's a, uh, what's it say here? Frothy beard. That's what it's called. I like it. It's from Charleston, like South Carolina. It says Sip Sip yeah. Pass. New, New England style IPA. Oh, a New England style. I'll have to I'll have to wait to try that. I don't think I've seen one. I'm going uh, San Diego Brewery, uh, Ballast Point, Sculpin, with uh, a whole new look to their presentation. It's interesting <laughs> when companies do that. You know, they just kind of change the whole look of of what they're selling it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You're an often I- it catches me off guard. You're an IPA guy, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I uh I love them to death and you know, it's that old argument like, well, you know, am I just like I don't drink to just get plowed, right? I don't sure. really even care about the buzz. I just I love the taste of these things and they just agree with me so Yeah, correctly. in the same way. Yeah. I mean I I just unfortunately I'm not a nurser, <laughs> you know. Right. I'll I'll like be through my second one in a you know in half an hour and next thing you know i'm starting to slur my words a little bit my (laughs) wife's going like okay oh man well you used to have your own podcast didn't you yeah i had something called the scratch cast yeah what was that i really enjoyed doing it but i'm you know like i said i'm i'm kind of a introvert so i i don't have a whole ton of connections and a whole ton of friends um, or people that I would call friends, you know, because that's a term that actually means something to me. So um, I have a lot of acquaintances, but ultimately I just uh, got the, the editing I had to do and, and the uh, the amount of time and effort it took to do this podcast, as you well know, mm-hmm. uh, just o- overwhelmed me, you know, and I, I just couldn't get anything else done when I was, when I was doing it. It, it would, uh, sort of eat into my studio time and eat into my guitar playing and family time. So sure. this is much fun. This is much fun as it was to do. I had to step away from it, but yeah, it yeah. may come back. Yeah. I mean, you know, th- this show, the rock and roll and coffee show, I do it once a week um, because I've got three kids at home. So, and I work full time. So it makes it hard to do all that stuff that you say. So I do it once a week yeah, and, you- and it's pretty much unedited. Oh, well, that's, that's the good thing. I'm, I'm the guy that, uh, like there's a, there's a YouTube, uh, interview or, or a portion of the interview 
And unfortunately, I'm the guy that's always saying, you know, and (laughs) one of the comments is, you know, you know, you know, and I wanted to write to the guy and say, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm working on it. But (laughs) so I'm not as talented as you are. So I end up having, you know, I haven't end up cutting those things out because they make me kind of ill. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. But anyway, let's um, I want to I want to hear about your journey in your career. So when did you start playing? Well, I started playing guitar uh, kind of late later on, you know, based on, uh, you know, my references to to other people who have have started, you know, in their eights and tens. And and I started at 17 or maybe 16, late 16. And, uh, you know, just just dove in and I really didn't do anything else. You know, I had these uh, false hopes of being a hockey player, but, uh, I pretty much dropped it all once I discovered guitar and that's really encompassed my journey at that point. Since. Okay. So you were big, you were big, uh, into hockey all through your younger age. Yeah. I was a Sabres fan growing up in Buffalo and, uh, I grew up in a really small town, you know, kind of a one, one light town and uh basically the fire department would would uh border off a section of their property and just hose it down and of course you know in our winters back then um the worst problem was having to shovel the snow off the ice all the time so um there we were you know a bunch of guys with sticks and and pucks and people trying to just skate their laps and yeah. you know it was all intermingled it's funny we were like playing hockey amidst all these these uh recreational skaters and it was it was kind of a trip come to think of it well kind of like an obstacle yeah totally, <laughs> totally. make you a better player oh yeah <laughs> so you started around 17 and when what um, made you pick up a guitar well i was walking down the street and uh, there's a new kid in town and he was sitting out in front of his house on the step with uh, a Fender thin line Telecaster, which as you may know, is a, uh, is a, ho- a ho- not a hollow body, but it's, it's hollowed out, you know, and it's got an F uh, yeah, yeah. clef on it. And uh, he was just playing this guitar. And I, I've been a fan of music since I was a kid. I mean, I, I used to uh, get off on the uh, sugary bubblegum pop that, you know, my dad had in in his car uh, way early on, and then it evolved from there. But I'd never seen anybody actually play the guitar before, you know, in in person. So I got up the courage and walked up and introduced myself, and we had a chat. And the next thing I knew, I was convincing my friends to buy a bass and drums, and we started a band. Right, pretty much shortly after that. And that's it took off from there. We ended up playing high school dances around the area and practicing a lot and learning our craft. And we got, uh, we got pretty good at being bad. <laughs> were you doing covers or were you writing songs back then? Uh, we had not gotten to the point of writing songs. I think the, the first lick I ever played was uh, 25 or six to four. And, uh, you know, I didn't even play it right at the time, but we did Neil Young songs and Alice Cooper was big with us, David Bowie. And, uh, it's funny. We played this other high school. It was like a rival high school. 
we played our dance. And of course we're, we're on one side of the gym and everybody else is standing on the other side. So it's this really intimidating gulf between us. And uh, we were playing not, not like the hit Neil Young songs. We would play the 10 and 12 minute, like cowgirl in the sand and down by the, down by the river or, uh, I shot my baby down, you know, whatever that lyric is, I forget yeah. now. But so these long guitar solos and, and, you know, we just played the songs like we heard them and thought, wow, this should be cool. Everybody knows these, right? And I remember one time I said, okay, uh, thanks a lot. We're going to take a 10 minute break. And from the back, I hear, make it 20. No, oh, geez. Should have came and, back uh, on in five. <laughs> well, of course, now I would do that, but at the time, I just, I just laughed and thought, okay, yeah, this is, uh, it's hopefully it won't go this way for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, clearly it did not. So, when, so what happened after that? I mean, when did you get to California? Well, that band obviously evolved, and as you mentioned earlier, we got to the point where we started writing songs, and we ended up being a, a pretty popular band called the Pedestrians in that southwestern New York area. And we were doing a really eclectic mix of of punk tunes, and we were doing Jeff Beck instrumentals and pretenders. And uh, I I remember one time doing a Devo-esque take on uh, Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll. So we were kind of pushing the boundaries at that point and, Mm -hmm. and having a great time doing it, and the crowds were coming out. It was really fun. But obviously, the uh, you know lifespan of the band in that area is pretty short because there's only so much you can do and so many places you can play. So we got in the van, uh, my bass player and I, and moved to California with the idea that we'd continue on in that vein. But we ended up going our separate ways, and I ended up with uh, a prog rock band. I think the keyboard player was with Arthur Brown which I know I'm dating myself. Uh, he had that song Fire, if you remember no, way back remember when. You probably don't. Mm-mm, mm-mm. But uh, that was fun. That was a learning experience, you know, and ended up in a cover band and working a day job and playing until two in the morning and trying to oh, force yeah. myself up, you know, after that. Crashed a couple of cars because I fell asleep, oh, all geez. that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, that was my thing. And then I uh, ended up, finally thinking to myself, okay, I'm never going to get in an original band if I'm just playing these covers all the time. So with a a lot of trepidation, I quit my cover band and got a job at Tower Records. And that turned into my introduction to Carmine at Peace. Mm -hmm. So how did you run into him? Well, I was working the counter and uh, this guy came in and he said, hey, uh, you play bass by any chance? I said, no, unfortunately, I'm a guitar player. So, um, yeah, it's not going to work. He said, oh, all right, well, that's, that's cool. And I don't think he even explained what he asked, the reason behind it. But, um, well, maybe he did. I, th- I think he said, yeah, Carmine, a piece is looking for guys for his band and or at least a bass player. So, you know, anyway, thanks. Right. And it turned out that... Uh, excuse me, when they needed a guitar player, he remembered me and sent Carmine down to tower. So there I am talking to this, you know, penultimate drummer 
in uh, the record store who's come to seek me out. And, you know, it's, it was, it was a pretty wild day for me. You knew it was and, Carmine. Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, I, I knew who Carmine was. I wasn't necessarily a fan of, right. of his bands. I remember one of the, one of the first records I had was a compilation on which was their vanilla fudge version of, uh, what, Oh my God, their big, their first big hit. Yeah. yeah Everybody who's listening know. Know, knows it, but me, but, uh, I, you know, I just thought it was kind of ponderous, but anyway, you know, it's, uh, he's a, an amazing drummer and I ended up, uh, getting the gig and it was really fun. So did you, you had to go down and try out? Yeah. I'm assuming. yeah, he asked me, one of the first things he asked is if I was willing to dye my hair. And uh, I've never, you know, I've always been sort of had a theatrical bent to my performances. So I didn't have a problem with that. And as long as that was out of the way, I went to the audition and seemed to pass it. What, what color was your hair? I, I'm a kind of a dark brown dude. Mm-hmm. So what color did he have you dye it? Oh, platinum blonde. Although I didn't get oh, the geez. platinum because it kind of, kind of, like held out at orange. But uh, yeah, if you see the pictures, it's uh, it was fun. I mean, it looked looked cool. I had a good time, and you know, we had to put pink in it, <laughs> which made us uh, kind of popular at truck stops along the road. Oh, geez. But uh, you know, it was also uh, you know. Uh, price of an education now this was for king cobra correct yeah they had already signed a deal with capital so essentially when i joined the band we went almost straight into pre-production and within a month or two i was in the studio with uh you know the guys making a record where quiet riot had just you know made their millions so, so did, did you was, bring uh, songs to the table or were they already there and you had to learn them? They were all written for that first record. There, There's one song on there called uh, Dancing with Desire that we collaborated on. But for the most part, uh, Dave, uh, Michael Phillips, the guitar player in the band, had, had most of the tracks written. And uh, ultimately what happened with that record is uh, Spencer, the producer, uh, had some cronies that came in and contributed lyrics and basically kind of took over that aspect of, of the record, which was kind of odd to me, but, um, I was, I was new to the game. So, um, and he also, uh, well, I don't want to say forced, but he did force a couple of songs on the, on the record that he had the Mm -hmm. exclusive publishing to, so, I mean, right away you could see that, you know, the business was in full swing and, you know, the, the dollar was more important than that actual, uh, actual integrity at that point. But I was, you know, happy to be in a band and get on the road and open for Kiss. And yeah. it was, uh, again, the, everything's the price of an education, you know, you have to learn it as you go. Yeah, yeah. So you toured with, who'd you tour with? Iron Maiden, right? Uh, I wouldn't say we toured with Iron Maiden. I think we just did one or two shows. Okay. Uh, We did tour with Kiss, and I believe, I get this confused all the time. (laughs) I think it was 
asylum. Well, what what um, year was that? 84, 85? That would have been 80, 85. Okay. Yeah. 85. And then uh, we came off the road and did our second record. And then we went out with, uh, and this was a highlight for me, we went out with a guy named Kim Mitchell, who used to be in a band called Max Webster from Canada. And uh, he was one of my heroes growing up. I, I mean, I've had so many uh, interesting experiences, you know, with his career that to open for him and to have him open for us, because we kind of alternated based on where who was getting rec- area, uh, uh, radio play mm. in the town. Um, that was, that was great in 1986, you know, for our second album. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, so you did two albums with them, right? Uh, yeah, they started, uh, I think I'm on a third in some, some songs because we did some demos after everything went to hell and they ended up getting released, but there's also other people from other bands all over them. So it, it kind of, uh, turned into uh an amalgam after that right right well is that and that's where you first met mark and lonnie in king cobra yeah that's correct they uh uh, the singer in king cobra mark free and the bass player johnny rod uh both left and uh lonnie and mark came aboard and we went over to spain and did some shows over there came back and I think we played the Roxy here in LA and a, and a few other shows. And then, uh, Carmine got, uh, Gene Simmons interested in sort of helping us out. Cause Gene at that point had started his record label. I think it was called money bags or Simmons records or something. Maybe right, it was right, Simmons right. records, but the was, logo yeah. was the money bags. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he, uh, next thing you know, we're covering a couple of old, you know, throwaway kiss songs. Oh, geez. And, uh, and I, and I say that with great respect because Gene is a really cool guy to me. And uh, so at that point, I started to get really uh, uh, disillusioned and quit the band. Mm-hmm. So you so you left to do your own thing and brought those guys with you or how? That... Well, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted I, I reached out to Mark and Lonnie and I said, hey, I'm going to I'm going to take off. I'm going to do my thing. And. And, uh, the response was, you know, the standard, or, uh, I should say expected. They wanted to stay in the band. And, you know, they had all these, uh, you know, Carmine had these plans and it was a big band and it was sure. well known. And, and those guys, it was the first taste of that, that those guys had had. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like they just dove into the pool and now somebody's saying, Hey man, I'm, I'm taking off. You guys want to get out? Yeah, and yeah. they didn't want to. So. Uh, but they came around after uh, after a while. I'm not sure how long it was. I know I was auditioning people in, you know, in my little studio. Um, but when they came out and uh, whatever, however much longer it was, it, it uh, made me happy. You know, I mean, sure. we had that band ready to go. And in fact, Dave came in down and played with us a couple of times, but that wasn't working out. So uh, it ended up just being the three of us, and Mark knew this drummer, so we got uh, into rehearsing and writing straight away. Okay, and and the drummer was that Jimmy? No, it wasn't. Okay, uh, Jimmy Jimmy 
thankfully came out, uh, came on not, not long after that. Mm -hmm. So how did you guys go about getting your deal? I mean, did you have these songs demoed and shopped it around or, I mean, how did you bullet boys get noticed? Well, uh, I have to think about that for a second because (laughs) I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much of that of the songs we committed to take. Uh I think that we basically, uh, because I know I had a four track recorder, you know, just a little cassette buddy. uh, But I don't, I think I kept it at home. I don't remember bringing it to our rehearsal space. So anything we would have had on tape would have been just on a, you know, a stereo cassette. Sure. But anyway, answering your question, I happened to be uh, at the Rainbow one night and I saw our merch guy from King Cobra, the King Cobra tour, and had a conversation with him. And he said, hey, I'm getting into management. If, uh, you know, you guys get something together and you'd like me to see it, just give me a call. And uh, that's what happened. I gave him a call. He came down to see us, was smitten. And he had, uh, I guess, he was in a partnership with another guy, so he had to figure out how to get out of that partnership so he could manage us exclusively. Mm. And so I know it was a complicated situation, but it ended up working out one way or the other. Right. Well, how? how and that... Uh, that. Go ahead. He he got us connected to uh, uh, Columbia, actually. And so we did a demo for Columbia uh, with Garth Richardson, who is, hi, Garth, you're fantastic, love you, brother. (laughs) And they passed on the demo. So we had to wait out a month where we couldn't use the demo to uh, uh, shop. And once that month passed, we played it for everybody from Geffen to Chrysalis to Warner Brothers and... Uh, Ted's sister, Roberta, was in A&R at Warner Brothers, and she passed the demo on to Ted, who came down and saw us and signed us on the spot. And that's that's the answer to your question. Yeah, yeah. Did you have other offers from Geffen or other labels? Uh, not that I know of. People, I remember uh, a guy coming down from Geffen and, and watching us, and he, he seemed... Uh, not necessarily disinterested, but we, you know, we sort of stopped playing and said, well, what do you think, man? Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, you guys, you guys are pretty good, but, uh, you know, I, I got this band called Junkyard and then they're, they're going to just lay waste to the landscape. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go with them mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm, I'm fine with how that turned out. Right. Right. See that. So you, you're on Warner brothers and then. You head into the studio, and you were you guys were produced by Ted Tepperman. Was that yep. always how it was going to be, or did you did you throw around different names to do the album? Well, he, as I've said so many times before, he was never on my list because oh no that uh, that first that uh, the Aerosmith record that he did it's called Done with Mirrors yeah and I'm a huge huge Aerosmith fan and I I just have always admired their vitality and energy and, and even the post Joe Perry records had, had that visceral feel to them and done with mirrors just 
lacks that in yeah. spades. I, I think Done With Mirrors is, is about as flat a record as I, I'd ever heard. And I, I just held that against Ted, you know, I didn't like, uh, I didn't like what he'd done with my band. And, uh, so he wasn't really on my list. I, I was hoping to get somebody like Brendan O'Brien and I liked the idea of Bob Ezrin, who, you know, was one of my heroes. And we ultimately ended up having a meeting with Bob Ezrin. And I remember we all got in the room and I'm, I'm excited. Trust me, this guy sure. has done, you know, most, uh, I mean, most of the like desert Island records I have, like Bob Ezrin's had something to do with them. And, uh, so we sit in the room and we're sitting around and he's going, okay, now let's see bullet boys, bullet, but, but bullet. Okay. <laughs> we're going to have to change the name right away. And, and my heart just sank, right? Like, okay. The first thing he does is he wants to change our name. I guess this meeting isn't going to be very long. And yeah, I think it lasted about 20 minutes. And uh. That was the end of that. So um, we ended up, you know, doing our record with Ted as uh, history will uh, we- uh, history will show. And it ended up being a, a great collaboration. I, I learned a lot from Ted and and got very much what he was doing, even if it wasn't right with what I had in mind. Did he change it a lot from what you had in mind? Uh, it ended up being a lot more stripped down. If if uh, I put a couple of demos up, three I think three demos that we did with Garth, and that's that's a closer representation of what I had in mind for this band and. I I certainly uh, certainly love, like I said, what what Ted did, but our, it's, it's almost like our first record feels unfinished to me, just because I had really? a different idea of how it was going to turn out, and I I had notes that I'd given them that uh, I wanted them to at least acknowledge in the mix, and that never happened. So there are literally things on the record that I I had a very different idea of, but. Uh, Ultimately, the fans, you know, make the decision as to whether it's, well, yeah. <laughs> it's a great record or not. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people thought it was a great rep- record, as you could uh, see how it turned out. I totally agree. I was one of them. I love that album. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's sweet. Thank you. Yeah, I ultimately you know, made friends with the idea that I wasn't going to uh, get what, what I was hearing in my head, you know. And, and for people that are thinking right now, like, Oh my God, this dude, what's, what's up with him, man? He can't even appreciate what he did. Well, keep in mind that if, if you work on something in a creative field and you have a vision and you, you are hearing how it should sound and it doesn't come out that way. And I fight, I fight that every day in my studio, yeah. you know, the things I play aren't necessarily what I'm hearing in my head. It's just, uh, an approximation mm-hmm. and that's, that's what you go with as an artist. And I'm, I really have a difficult time not being candid about it. Sure. But, uh, you know, that's, that's just the reality of it. You know, when I listen to that playback and everybody's in the room and they're juking and jiving and everybody's dancing and having a great time, I'm thinking, holy fuck, this is not what I imagined it was going to be. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, again, you know, after in-store after in-store and you're listening to the songs and people are getting off on it. And, and the reality is that I can do what I want live. Like we're on the road. I can play what I wanted to play. Yeah, so yeah. I can almost sort of get back at the songs and 
that's that's sort of how I looked at it. Is that what you did? Oh yeah, I <laughs> I did not. In fact, I again, Aerosmith comes up right. Like those guys, when when you heard them live, especially in their drug days, very little of what they did on stage resembled what they did in the studio. I mean, Joe was playing what he felt like playing, and, mm. and you know, it, it sounded like a free for all at times, which, for better or worse, is kind of how I approached in my songs. Like it, I, I thought about doing this in the studio, but I didn't get it on that take. So I'm going to do it here. Or I, I didn't get to overdub a solo on the outro. I'm going to play one here. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of how I approached it. Well, see that as a fan, that's fun though. At least that's how I always thought of it. You know, when you go and you see something like that happen and you notice it, a lot of people won't notice small things, but you know, you don't want to just go to the show. I never wanted to go to the show and just hear the exact thing on the record. You know what I mean? It was, live, I, it was a live concert. Oh, dude, so yeah. If I ever went to a show and I saw a band just playing everything note for note, I'd be horrified. Yeah. I'd say, what the fuck are you doing? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, that's not exciting. Right. It's great to be yeah. there and see it live, but it's, it's basically listen to the album loud. Right. And, and that's what I love about uh, Lonnie and Jimmy and Mark, you know, because as we grew and, and keep in mind, when we first got signed, we didn't we weren't like a strip band. We played probably a total of six, seven, maybe eight shows before we got signed. Really? So we were still we were still finding ourselves because we spent most of our time in our rehearsal studio working on arrangements and and songs and and trying to uh to piece together what we thought were the best possible representations of, of what we were doing so by the time we got out on the road and, and you can sort of hear the progression because in the early days i'm i'm sort of feeling out the material and as as we move into like 1989 1990 you can hear that we're stretching out. Next thing you know, we're like vamping out on songs or somebody's busting into something completely different in, in a breakdown mm -hmm. and everybody is on the same page. And, and there's such a symbiotic relationship between uh, the four of us that it, it, it remains to today. Mm -hmm. So we still sort of nurture that ability to improvise. And, and that's, that's the most important thing about music to me. It's it's improvisation. It's it's not sitting down and learning a solo note for note, and making right. sure you play it right every night. Fuck that. That's right. that's not right. what I have ever done. And I uh, I appreciate bands like Aerosmith. You know, whether they're drunk or stoned or or straight edge, I, I appreciate that those guys recognize that. Led Zeppelin recognized that. Right. Um, you know, I'm I haven't been to a whole lot of concerts, you know, just like in Palmer used to do that. They vamp out and do things differently. And you'd sit there and, and expect what you heard on the record, but you'd get something else and you'd go like, Oh fuck, that was great. Jeff Beck. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that guy, you go see Jeff Beck and I'm, I'm the guy sitting in the stands smiling and laughing out loud <laughs> because what he's doing is yeah. so just unexpected and, and quirky, but genius. Yeah, and right. I I just love that about music. You know, give me something unexpected. Give me a left turn. Give me something that that no one would ever expect, 
and uh, I'm golden. Yeah. Now, in the studio, did you guys record live, or did you record individually? No, we did it the way we were supposed to do it, we, the way we were born to do it, which is everybody in the room doing it live and uh, getting getting the takes uh, you know, the way you're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. unfortunate that uh, that we can't do more of that now. Um, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, big studios are are fewer and harder to come by now. And when you do, they're way too expensive. And everybody's home studio is is much more affordable and much more convenient. But we lose that, everybody being in the room at the same time. And uh, that's exactly how that all of our records were, were made that way. Awesome. Now, of course, you know, were there the occasional overdubs? Sure. Absolutely. And did you, I mean, it's just like, and we did everything to tape. So as, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you when you're going to tape, you've got to get it right (laughs) because there's only so much you can do in terms of, of cutting, pasting, punching in, you know, it's the tracks have to be right. And that's, that's the other thing I've learned about from Ted. Uh, Not that I hadn't experienced it before, but Ted took care to get, you know, the drum track exactly how he wanted it. And frankly, you know, the guitar was the last thing he thought about. So Mm -hmm. to me, um, I wish I could have gone back and I could have, you know, done this differently or layered over this or, you know, just done things that, uh, that, like I said before, I had in in mind, but, uh, he liked it the way it was, you know, I say, Ted, Hey, can I go in and patch that or, or what? He goes, no, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you did two singles off that album, I believe, Smooth Up and Cover for the Love of Money, right? Yeah. And it's interesting. People probably don't know this unless they've heard me say it before, but that record was dead in the water. We uh, released it, I think, in September of 1988, and the label wanted us to just sit on our hands and wait for the record to take off, even if it meant going into 1989. Really? And uh, obviously our manager, you know, at our insistence said, hey man, these guys can't just sit around for that long. They're, they, you know, they may not be around, you know, before the record takes off. So at our uh, insistence, as I said, we ended up going on the road with a couple of my heroes, uh, Ian Hunter and Nick Ronson. And they, I don't know what they had going on, but they were just playing clubs. I mean, mm-hmm. we're going into clubs and opening for these guys. And of course, Mick Ronson was just a freaking rock star, man. He was wearing his makeup and playing like these dinner clubs, right? And and after the show, he's going, hey, hey mate, uh, let's go get some blow. <laughs> and uh, so I could just loved him. Of course, he died, you know, not too long after that. But that was our first tour. And believe me, Warner Brothers didn't want to see us out on that. We kind of pushed the issue and uh, ended up making the smooth up video. But before that video came or at the time that video came out, we went up to do two shows of cheap trick in arenas, which was our first. And we had a couple of club dates that would obviously pay the expenses to do the arena shows because opening for cheap trick was not, 
a high paying gig, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we do the shows at Cheap Trick. It's it's a blast and it's amazing and it's you know there are images from from those two shows that I'll I'll never forget because not to go off too far into the weeds, but when I was a kid, I I went to this rock club in Jamestown, New York, and I saw this band right, and I I didn't know uh, what the what songs they were playing, but the first two songs they played resonated with me in a way that I, I didn't understand even like, Oh my God, what, what are they playing? Those guys, are they, they're so, what is happening right now? Because these two songs that they played just blew me away. Well, I don't know if I'm dreaming this or if this actually happened, but I went home that night and I'm laying in bed and I, I've obviously got the, the rock station tuned in late at night. Right. Like my parents would, kill me if they knew I had it on and all of a sudden I hear those two songs and they were uh, Hello There and Big Eyes from In Color and Black and White from Cheap Trick mm-hmm. and I thought oh my god th- those are like my songs like I I need to be playing those songs I need to have written those songs <laughs> so for the rest of my days after that I want all I wanted to do was go to Chicago or Roxford or wherever those guys were and watch them in a club. I swear to God, I would sit in school and just dream of going to Chicago and catching Cheap Trick in a club. Okay, so that that being said, we did the shows at Cheap Trick. We do our club day, and I'm upstairs practicing, and it's just another club, right? Like I figure, okay, cool. We'll do, you know, there'll be 30, 40 people here and, and they'll all dig it. And we'll make some, make an impression, maybe sell a couple records. It'll be great. And we get ready to do the show and I'm coming down the stairs to go to the stage and the place is packed. And my tour manager comes, comes up and goes, Mick, there's a line around the block. They aren't <laughs> going to get everybody in. And I said, whoa, who, who do they think is playing here? Do they think, you know. <laughs> are they, are they thinking this is us or, you know, I got a little confused, frankly. And that is, that was the moment that, you know, this new video had kicked in at MTV and yeah, yeah. to me, I couldn't, I couldn't afford to pay for MTV. Yeah. And, uh, so you weren't following it. The, yeah. That was the moment that the record came alive again. Um, so long, long way to say that our record was dead. And then, essentially became revived yeah yeah well i mean it it blew up after the smooth up yeah it's pretty wild yeah i mean i caught you i caught you guys i think it was on that tour with um shit was it winger maybe winger and cinderella was that yeah we were on a three-band tour opening for winger and cinderella and it again you know it's not a high-paying gig but the fact that the, the arenas were basically full when we went on, which is not standard for an opening act. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typically that's, as Van Halen used to say, that's like a t-shirt band, right? Where they're just there. So people will go buy a t-shirt because they don't care about who's playing. Um, but that wasn't the case. When we went on, uh, the, the arena was full and it was loud and it was freaking glorious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so after the first album came out, you had all that success with it. Then Freak Show comes out, and that was in oh shit. I don't even know when that was. Probably ninety. Yeah, when we came 91? off the road, uh, we spent a lot of time on the road for the first record, three hundred eighty-six days to be exact. Wow. And uh, when we uh, played the demos for Ted, he was uh, for the second record. He was less than impressed. So we ended up uh, having to take more time to work on material and sort of find where we wanted to take it. And we already knew we had experienced. Excuse me, I'm still in my IPAs. A mm, yeah, no worries. Anyway, we uh, and you're probably going to have to do more editing on this one. Oh, I'm sorry. Don't, don't sorry. worry, Mick. We're not it's editing. It. We're not editing anything. <laughs> so. Uh, so we get home, right? And we we don't really get to take a break. I mean, we're all exhausted. And we get home in, I think, in October. And I, I'm still setting up my studio that I just bought. And then in December, we go into the studio and lay out all our songs for Ted. He's less than impressed and wants us to go back into writing. Hmm. And at this point, we, we decided, uh, I think we decided the, the what we wanted to call the record based on kind of our experiences in the industry and 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 what we've been through and what we'd seen and uh so it, it took a little bit of a darker turn uh and i'm i'm proud of that i sort of wanted it to be darker mm-hmm. and uh and and reflect our experiences as, as opposed to the first record which we, you know, everybody had their experience in the music industry, but not to the extent that the next year and a half uh, uh, did. So, right. yeah. At any rate, it got off to a slower start, and we didn't finish it. I, I don't think till later on in 1990. Were you happy the way it came out? I was. Okay. I was. I uh, I had a difficult time uh, recording that first record because. Uh, Ted loved the tone that I was getting and it, and it was very different from what I was accustomed to. And by the time the second record came around, I, I was in a position to be able to say, fuck it, I'm going to turn it up. Well, you probably had <laughs> more say at that point, right? Say it again. You, you probably had more say on the second album than coming uh, in with. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, Ted is, uh, Ted is, is a superstar producer, mm-hmm. you know? So he, you know, he took his time showing up at times he wouldn't show up at all. So as, as somebody that, that likes to get down and, and get at it and work hard and, and get things done with efficiency, uh, I was in the wrong environment for that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, ultimately, um, when it did get done, I, I was happier with it. Um, and you know, it's it's probably my favorite record of the three because because of that mm-hmm. we uh, you know we again felt more more like uh, a seasoned band and uh, everybody had uh, everybody had you know their input and it was uh, it was a, a much darker dirtier record for me right right now if I recall that had two singles also didn't it. THC Groove and Hang On St. Christopher. 
Yeah. What? Yeah. I, so why, why, like, you you did a single for the love of money and then Hang On St. Christopher, both cover songs. Why why to make that choice to do a single as a cover song? I mean, the cover songs, make those the singles. Well, that's that's Ted. Ted is Ted's a song guy. Mm-hmm. And if he's not feeling a song, he's going to go to a cover, as anybody in Van Halen will tell you, anybody, you know, in, well, I don't know who else is on covers, but I, <laughs> I happen to know he's a cover cat. Yeah. And uh, he, he's just a song guy. It's not even covers. It's he's, he's a great song guy. And when he hears a song and it resonates with him, it, uh, it becomes almost an obsession with him, i.e. the... Uh, the Tom Waits tune, Hang On mm. St. Christopher. I remember when he, he brought that idea in and he played it for us, I was, I I have to admit, I was a little befuddled. Mm-hmm. If you've ever heard that tune, it's almost cacophonous in its, in its breadth. And it took me quite a while to, to think about how I was going to try to uh, try to color that that tune, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it, I I love the way it turned out. It's one of my favorite songs to play, mm-hmm. uh, frankly. Um, but that's Ted. You, he the story behind Money was when Mark was in King Cobra. I uh, I was a huge fan of that song, obviously. And when Mark came in, of course, he's got. Uh, vocabulary of R&B turns and twists and and just a a grasp of R&B that not many people have. I mean, he's extremely unique in that regard. And so uh, when I thought of that song and Mark being able to sing it, I ran straight to Tower Records. I bought the single. I came back and I did a demo version of it on my little four track that more mimicked the OJ's version. Uh, I kind of stayed away from the backbeat and, and kept it, you know, really heavy, you know, just on that, uh, with, with that groove that they sort of established. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but unfortunately I never got Mark to come in and sing it. So we're in the studio and I think the guys are, are off doing something else. And it's just me and Ted and, and he pulls me aside and he says, Hey Mick, you know, do you have any tapes? Just let, let me see what else you guys have. I want to, you know, see what, what else we can do here. And I'm playing this tape of, of our original songs, but this cover of Money happens to be on there. And when it comes on, I, I kind of jumped up and I rushed over to the machine and I was going to fast forward it because I, I didn't really want to do a cover, frankly. And uh, there was no vocal on it. And I, you know, I didn't want to, get in trouble with the guys because it was something it was one of my ideas but sure enough as soon as it came out he goes whoa 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 what is that what is that and right then I knew I was busted yeah. and we listened to it and the rest is history yeah yeah so now Freak Show that didn't have the success that your first album had correct or am I wrong that is correct no okay. you're correct okay I'm trying to remember I could be wrong when I say these things so just correct me if I'm wrong <laughs> no, they they don't even compare. The last uh, the last count I had, and, and I think this is post sound scan. So um, I mean, I, somebody on YouTube again 
uh, thought that I I might not have this correct, but prior, our record came out I think before the advent of SoundScan. So there there are a certain number of records that were sold. The point being that the last I heard, our first record had sold eight hundred thousand, and our first record sold. I think 300,000. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So obviously those numbers have, have changed by now. Sure. But, um, but that is the last official count. If you want to call hearsay official. I do remember freak show had a cool, I had it on CD. I still have it actually, but it, uh, it, it pulled out. Like, yeah, the C- well, I yeah what you could look called. through it. I forget what, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was something that, Somebody thought was going to be really cool. It was kind of cool, and I, uh, I, uh, I have one too, I have one uh, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in your box. Thing. What was it? Yeah, yeah. What's that called? I'm trying to remember. Anyway, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Um, so then, by that time, as everybody knows, and we've said many times on this show, talking to guests, that you know, music changed hands. Um, but you guys still released a third album during that whole time, right? Uh, we did, yeah. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I mean, was there a lot of push behind that album or was it just you recorded an album because you had to record an album and that was done? Well, it, it, I'm sure that the writing was on the wall for, for us in the corporate offices. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there really wasn't any evidence of that. I, I get the impression that Ted sort of lost interest at that point because uh, a lot of the studio time, once the basic tracks were recorded, uh, was just me and Mark in the studio mm-hmm. doing overdubs and doing vocals. Um, I'm not going to say Ted had a hands-off approach to that record, but of all of them, he, he seemed to have moved on. Right. Um, uh, but as far as the label goes, uh, they, they seem to still be in the game. So we decided uh, that we were going to come out with something that was different. I mean, we could clear, we could see the writing on the wall too. It wasn't like we were, uh, blindfolded by any of this. So we thought that mine, which is, uh, a very different track for us. We thought, at the very least, this could come out and resonate with, uh, you know, a different crowd. And uh, so that's the single we came out with. And it was starting to get some legs at radio. And that's pretty much when the band fell apart. Mm-hmm. What, what tore the band apart? Well, uh, I I was getting tired of the friction and, and the uh, the discord and the dysfunction. And um, after we did a show at, uh, or actually before we did a show at the Palace, I announced that I was going to be leaving the band and that I would, you know, fulfill my obligations with the record and see it through, but that I wasn't going to record anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just ready to go off and, and do something different. Mm-hmm. As, you know, I mean, the, the uh, uh, landscape, would have dictated that for yeah. anybody in that situation. I mean, it was just time to find something else to do at that point. Yeah. Uh, so we agreed to, uh, uh, go our separate ways. Mark and Lonnie, uh, continued, uh, on with the name. And, 
I just, I sort of hibernated, started playing a lot of hockey and, and, uh, working on more acoustic oriented ambient stuff. And that was, uh, that was pretty much what I did for the next little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Was there ever any, um, any friction with the name? Like I know, didn't Mark go out at one time as Bullet Boys, of course, but he was the only member? Uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, that was the agreement that Jimmy and I made was that those guys could have the name uh, with the idea that they would, you know, go off and do more original material. And uh, what evolved from there, I'm, I can't say. I wasn't a part of it. But mm -hmm. uh, probably... Probably not the smartest business move. You know, I should have retained some, some control, mm -hmm. you know, over the name. And but uh, at the time, I I really I just wanted to distance myself from the whole scene. Sure, I understand. That was the choice I made. Yeah, yeah. Because that you know you see in the news. I I don't know if you follow it, but like you know, for instance, with the LA guns guys, and you know, there's been the rat guys. You know. There's a feud over the name a lot of times, and it gets a little bit confusing as just a fan, I think. Well, I do, too. I do, too. I mean, it, it, it looks like a mess, and it looks like it's just, uh, you know, complete confusion, even amongst the band members. And, yeah. and certainly, I'm sure that was part of my thinking, like, you know, let's just do as clean a cut as we possibly can here. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there were times... Honestly, where I, where I thought, okay, I, I wish I could dictate a little more what's happening here at yeah. times, but you know that's again, in the words of Keith Richards, man, it's the price of an education. Yeah. And uh, evidently, I'm going to pay that price until <laughs> you know somebody somebody puts a rose on my chest. Yeah. So then you started some other band. You had uh, what was it? Lies, deceit, and treachery, right? With Lonnie yeah, and Jimmy. I ended up. I ended up doing, uh, uh, like I said, the ambient stuff. And then I, I got uh, a hankering to do uh, more heavy rock. So I ended up in a band with, uh, I, I got a couple of guys that ended up in Five Finger Death Punch to play uh, play with me for a, a bit. And that was that was a lot of fun. Jeremy and, and Jason Hook were, okay. were uh, really great players. And I had a good time playing with those guys. And... Then uh, I had uh, Troy Patrick Farrell and John Winquist in my band for a while, and that that was a lot of fun too. And ultimately, we uh, I got a call from Mark, and he said, "Hey man, do you want to just come down to the studio and play some of the old songs?" And that record ended up coming out, which was fun. It was nice to get back together, and and like I've said earlier, you know, sort of have at those songs the way that I had hoped to. What what record um, was this? It's called Burning Cats and Amputees. Hmm. And I, I still am not sure why. But uh, it's a, you know, it was fun. We had a good time getting in the studio, and it was really the first time we'd all been together in a room, and, and, and that was the best part of it for me. I, I truly love playing with these guys, and uh, and that was a, a fun experience at that point. We I think we played a few shows after that, but then we parted ways again until we ended up doing a show at the former Key Club in Los Angeles, I think in 
Uh, I can't even begin to know the year. It might have been 2010 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and then is that when you did your Delights, Deceit, and Treachery band? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Um, I'm well, I was just wondering because that, that was with Lonnie and Jimmy, right? Basically, both yeah. boys without Mark. Right. I mean, I was trying to fill in the gaps for my Yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, so then we, Jimmy and I had been working together for quite a while and, and trying to get something going and some songs together. And when we got to a point where we had enough songs, we thought we'd look for a singer. And we ended up finding Shane Tassart. Mm-hmm. And he came in and, and we worked with him for a bit. And uh, for whatever reason, that didn't work out. And we ended up uh, staying together, the three of us, Jimmy, Lonnie, and I, and teaming up with another singer. And that was those two versions of Lies, Deceit, and Treachery did uh, you know some dates here and there. You know, not not that many, but we uh, we had a good time playing the songs and and again sort of uh getting back at uh at material that has been in our lives forever yeah yeah so it was a lot of fun yeah and then so now you've got the hot summers is that still going yeah well what came out of my meeting with Shane Tassart was the hot summers which was a band um that he and I well Jimmy was originally a part of that and um we have basically uh, 20 songs or so that have been around for for a bit now, along with some newer ones that we've written. And uh, that's, that's currently what I'm working on. I'm so, mixing tunes uh, that uh, one of which came out. It's called The Last One to Cry. And there's a YouTube video of that. I saw that. And it, Good stuff. Yeah, and Good it's stuff, available wherever you buy music. It's available so please go check it out and uh we're gonna have some more i just finished a mix on a tune uh the other day and we'll uh we'll be getting more material out as it uh as it gets done and i think it's probably going to come out in ep form mm-hmm. but uh yeah stay tuned i mean we have uh check out our instagram and facebook and and say hi on uh, the hot summer pages yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. I just followed those when I uh, found them. But yeah, from what I heard, I mean, it's good stuff. Are you doing it all at your studio? Yeah, that's right. Okay. I uh, I've heard Last One to Cry was mixed by Howie Weinberg, who is a world class, or I should say, mastered by Howie Weinberg. He's a world class master uh, engineer, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll probably stick with him because he does a great job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Bullet Boys is together, I would say, right? Yeah. In fact, I just got word today that uh, one of the shows, because obviously uh, we did uh, we did the Monsters of Rock Cruise in February of 2020, as, basically as the pandemic was hitting. In other words, yeah, February. I remember going on the boat and thinking, okay, and hearing that some people aren't going to be allowed on this boat because they come from certain areas. Oh, and I thought, wow, that's pretty extreme. And uh, But we, we ended up doing the shows. Everybody got off the cruise and was healthy, and, and there wasn't a problem. 
But of course, everything just went downhill very quickly after that. Yeah. yeah. So we had a, a bunch of shows lined up for 2020, and every one of them just went by the wayside. And uh, they just keep getting pushed back with good reason. I mean, we all want to be safe. But again, long story short, we have a show next month in Kentucky that looks like it's actually going to take place. So that will be the first show we've done in, uh, well, over a year. Are they, or is it half capacity shows or, or is it full shows? That I can't tell you. I think they're going to have tables that are six feet apart. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure about the capacity, but, uh, we, I think it's with, uh, I think it's with, uh, hip winger. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I don't know. I'm not going to say it right now because I'm <laughs> not as informed as I should be on these things. Yeah, but no the point worries. the point is that we're going to be there. And uh, I'm sure I'll, uh, if you check in with me on Facebook, Instagram, I'll, I'll post the information if uh, you're so inclined to come. Yeah, yeah. Now, how do you feel about these half-capacity shows? Well... I want people to get out and, and have a good time. I mm-hmm. I certainly believe that we are all uh, responsible and able to go out and, and be safe and careful and and res- respectful. Um, and I would expect that uh, these shows will be exactly that. Yeah. So I'm I feel good about it. Am I concerned? Do I? Do I worry about catching, you know, the coronavirus or whatever we want to call it? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So, uh, you know, it won't be without its uh, a nervous component, certainly. But um, I think well, it's time. You know, yeah, I, think I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? You got to right. kind of start testing it out a little bit and, you know, see how it goes, I guess you would say. Yeah, that's exactly what I am totally up for doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, did you guys do uh, Monsters of Rock? They were having those little uh, online shows. Yes, we did. Uh, how do I describe it? It was a not. It wasn't a pay per view because people could uh, witness our show for free. But we were basically the uh, the test bed for for what. Uh, Ended up being a Monsters of Rock, uh, yeah, live stream. Yeah, yeah. Was was that weird? Because for. you know, I, I've I've played in bands and stuff, and you know, played to some rooms that weren't quite full sometimes. And when there's no in that room, all you had was crew, basically, probably right. Yeah, it was dead silent. Isn't and that weird? And not only that, but they had uh, these panels that surrounded us that created um i don't even know how to describe it. it it and i'm looking at a picture of it now on my computer screen uh a shot from that set but uh the panels are glass so they are very reflective and in addition to what you're talking about which is zero audience other mm-hmm. than the crew who are completely silent um there is just an, an audio sort of disaster waiting to happen because we didn't have any amps in there because of the reflective well actually it was a I think a an aesthetic 
decision mm-hmm. because they wanted to be able to see all these panels. So I literally had them, and my amps were supposed to be in the like the back of it, where I just be getting it through my monitor. But I said, "Wait a minute, man! I, I, I'm like Ted Nugent, man. I need to stand in front <laughs> right, of these amps. Right. You got to feel it, and I got to feel it. And if it's going to feed back, I'm going to turn that into music, man. Um, so I had a, you know my amps brought up to uh, a point, basically off stage. So. Anyway, to answer your question, I think it's a long way around. Yeah, no. uh, it, it was it was a difficult it was a difficult gig. That had to be a long show. Again, yeah, and <laughs> and I I know that uh, there was a guy there that wanted to handle my guitars, and I thought, okay, cool, this guy seems to know what he's doing. Well, sure enough, next thing I know, my freaking strap is falling off, and now I'm oh, I'm trying to connect my strap. So there were there were definite issues that ne- should never have uh, been a part of a rock show, but yeah, uh, you know, the, hopefully, you know, the bands that came on after us learned from that, and, and uh, certainly I did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to hand my guitar off to somebody I don't know anymore. Right, right. All right, Mick. Well, listen, man, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, it was great talking to you. Yeah, I had a great time. Thank you very much, Joe. I appreciate it. And uh, like I said, check out the Hot Summers. Um, I am. Yeah, uh, we're on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, and and uh, say hi. And uh, if someone wants to uh, check me out on Instagram, they can do that too. That'd be great. I appreciate it very much. And look forward to being on again, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, definitely. And if, like I said in the beginning of the show, if you ever get out this way. Hit me up, okay? I will, Joe. Thank you. Let's stay in touch. Right, we'll go drink an IPA. Uh, you got it, brother. <laughs> All right, bud. Well, listen, take care. Be safe out there, and uh, we'll talk. You do the same. Thanks, Joe. All right, man. Bye. Bye. That's all for this week. Join us next week for another episode of the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast listening platforms.